And then at the end, he said to me, he said, Christiana, I want to tell you one thing. My 13 year old daughter comes home every night and asks me if I have her interest at heart. Because of her, I'm going to transform this company. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. This podcast explores the big ideas about how we tackle the climate crisis and renew our economies in a post-pandemic world. This week, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Christiana Figueres, who, as head of the United Nations Convention on Climate Change, spearheaded the international talks that led to the historic Paris Agreement. Paris was a turning point, and for us in New Zealand, became the foundation of our own zero carbon legislation, which passed Parliament unanimously last year. Since leaving the United Nations, Christiana has helped to found Global Optimism, a purpose-driven enterprise focused on social and environmental change. She's also the co-host of the popular podcast Outrage and Optimism, and co-author of a new book called The Future We Choose. Christiana joined us from her rented home on the Pacific coast of Costa Rica. If you hear any unfamiliar sounds cropping up in the background of our conversation, that's the local bird life dropping by. As always, I'd love to hear your feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. And please subscribe and give us a rating in Apple Podcasts as it will help others to discover the show. Now here's my conversation with Christiana Figueres. Christiana, I'd like to start with something that you said recently about how this decade is the most consequential in human history. You said, we've got everything that we need to transition. We've got the capital, the technology, and the policies. We're also equipped with the scientific knowledge that we have to halve our emissions by 2030 whilst growing uh, meeting grow, growing energy demand. Previous generations, of course, didn't have the technology. And for future generations, it'll be too late. So you've said that this really is the moment for change. How can we meet that challenge, do you think, just given the scale of the change that's required? Well, first, just to underline um, that it really is um, the, the the challenge of the of human species to ensure that we are going to follow the advice of science, which we have learned in the past two months. It is actually a good idea to follow the advice of science. Um, and science has uh, for quite a long time. Climate scientists have been telling us that we are almost at the top of the absorption capacity of the global atmosphere to absorb CO2. Um, and that if we go over that absorption capacity, we uh, will be hitting tipping points that will be magnitudes, orders of magnitude worse for us than the current uh, disruption of COVID-19. Um, and none of us should underestimate what uh, what this pandemic has um, has actually done to 
um, make us lose lives and livelihoods. So if we take that as a baseline and then we imagine what this would be by orders of magnitude worse, it is definitely a scenario that we don't even want to tempt fate with. Um, and I think that's the huge wake up call from COVID-19 is to realize that this this is enough of a warning. We don't need to tempt our our fate and our destiny any further than this. Uh, and uh, science has been pollutedly clear in saying that by 2030, we need to be at one half the emissions globally that we have right now. Now, um, up until two months ago, everyone was saying that is completely impossible. It's physically impossible. There's no way that we could do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but lo and behold, we actually have already as an unintended consequence of COVID-19, we already know, uh, according to the estimates that have already been made public by the International Energy Agency, that this year we will drop uh, our global uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 8%. That is more than the annual drop that we would need to make to be at one half by 2030. So, um, so to all of those who argue it's physically impossible, I think that is now a moot, uh, a completely moot argument. However, it's very important to underline that this was an unintended consequence, not an intentional consequence, and that certainly carbon efficiency of the economy, such as we have to pursue, cannot have uh, the high human cost that this one has had. So we cannot pursue carbon efficiency and cutting um, emissions by uh, losing lives and livelihoods. That is exactly the opposite to what uh, carbon efficiency actually seeks and what the climate response seeks. What we seek with uh, with judicious management of our emissions is actually the opposite. What we seek is to improve the quality of life of citizens, to make cities more livable, more breathable, greener, uh, more easily trans uh, for us to uh, transport ourselves better. We seek a better quality of life and improvement of well-being rather than, uh, than this very sad uh, curtailment of, uh, of well-being that we've had over the past two months. But it is possible, right? That's what we have proven. And it is possible based on two things. First, definitely government systemic incentives and regulations because we need those systemic transformations to guide the transfer, to guide the transition, but also, also, individual behavioral changes. And to everyone who said, oh, you know, we are creatures of habit. There's no way that we're going to change the way that we that we eat and the way that we transport ourselves and the way that we work and all of this. Well, you know, that's also a mood um, objection now, a mood argument, because we've seen how in two months we have had dramatic individual um, behavioral changes. Um, so it is possible. So um, so now it's a question of figuring out how do we continue the descent of emissions um, without the curtailment of, uh, of human well-being? And that, James, actually comes down to one very consequential decision that is being taken across the world over the next three to 12 months. 
And that consequential decision is what is the characteristic of the recovery packages of COVID? Here's the crux. Recovery packages of uh, post-pandemic will, and this is of course after health has been taken care of and, um, and social network um, and social safety. But after that, there is going to have to be, and in some countries there already is, the push toward fresh money that is going to be injected into the economy in order to kickstart the economy and create jobs again. If that fresh money that can reach all the way up to 20 trillion worldwide is injected into high carbon sector or high carbon companies that continue to pollute our local air and our global atmosphere, then, and, and all of those decisions will be reached over the next 12 months, if that happens, then we stand absolutely no chance of having emissions by 2030 because the scale of that fresh capital will dwarf anything that we can do from a policy perspective. On the other hand, if governments wake up to the fact that we can reduce emissions, increase well-being, increase GDP, increase, um, increase jobs, increase the quality of life of, uh, of all of us here, then those 10 to 20 trillion dollars can be the best turbocharge um, factor for both economic recovery right away, but also to reduce emissions and meet the climate challenge. So ironically, ironically, here we have two crises that have collided with each other, the health crisis, the human health crisis, and the planetary health crisis. They have collided with each other in this period of the, uh, of the economic recovery. And because they have collided with each other, that is why we have the responsibility, but also the huge opportunity to make the solutions to both converge. This is something as a someone who's in government, I've been um, concerned about myself. You know, we are frankly about to spend an astonishing sum of money uh, trying to re resuscitate our economy. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know how well you know New Zealand, but we're not given to radical moves. <laughs> you know, we, we're sort of a, you know, a, we kind of like things to evolve over time. Uh, and so generally governments only have permission to do reasonably incremental uh, uh, changes. Um, and so, you know, obviously that is that is all changed. And we've discovered things that we never knew were possible before, like our ability to make enormous moves in a very short period of time if we absolutely have to. So that, that to me is interesting. But the, the thing that worries me is, so, you know, there are a lot of people here talking about, yes, look, there is this opportunity if you're going to deploy capital at that scale right now, then we can actually have a crack at fixing some of the problems that we were going to struggle under a business as usual scenario because we're only allowed to do things incrementally under a business as usual scenario. But the flip side, which I think you've just hinted at, uh, is, is pretty grim. It's because we're going to spend, I don't know, 10 to 20 years worth of, you know, budget allowances. That means that for the, you know, taxpayers, our children and their children for the next 20 years are going to be paying back the money that we're spending now, uh, which deprives them 
of the opportunity to deploy capital at that scale over their period of time. You know, we, we get to do this exactly. once. We don't, we don't get to do this twice. And so if we don't use this money to, you know, um, reduce, decarbonize the economy and build up our adaptive ability and, and resilience, we're actually depriving them of the option of doing it themselves. Uh, and, exactly. And, and so it's a, it is kind of a double-edged sword. It's yes, yes, there's opportunity, but, but actually we kind of have, it feels to me like we have one shot at this. We do have one shot and that's a, a very, very, very good way of, uh, of putting it because um, as you say, all governments are going to be borrowing money, right? Against future income, all of you, all governments are going to be borrowing money against five or 10 years future income in order to meet the crisis today. And hence, if we're borrowing against the next generation's wallet, we better make sure that the next generation's uh, interest is what is guiding our investment today. Because otherwise, A, we will borrow against their wallet and we will condemn them to a situation that they will have no possibility to remedy. I think that is really the critical piece to understand that it's not like we can screw up today and then make up for it tomorrow. We can't anymore. If we do not rectify our, our trajectory on emissions now, we will go over that limit, over the threshold, and we will condemn all future generations to a world that is under constant destruction, constant deepening misery. And in fact, we may even condemn the human race to have to resort to very small geographic areas on this planet that will still be inhabitable. Obviously, not over the next 20 years, but over a longer period of time. But that trajectory will already be determined now. That's the point. It's not like that trajectory will be determined over the next 50 years. No, over the next 50 years, we will see that play out. But the trajectory is one that we will all determine right now. So you're absolutely right. We are borrowing against their wallet. We might as well have the integrity and the morality to invest that money for their long-term benefit. Christiana, as someone who has been at the epicenter of the uh, uh, fits and starts global uh, attempt to deal with climate change, are there countries that you are in touch with that you see who are making wise choices about how to deploy their post-COVID recovery uh, efforts? Well, let, let me answer that in, 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 in two sections, if I may, because um, we have um, history, I think, will be known in, in a new BC and AC before COVID and after COVID, right? Um, and in, in, in BC before COVID, um, there was already an astonishing number of countries that had already managed to decouple their emissions, their CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions from their GDP, meaning that they were already on a trajectory of CO2 or equivalent oil greenhouse gas um, emissions were already 
already on the descent while their GDP was growing. And those were actually 21 countries um, by last count, many of them admittedly in uh, in Europe, um, but not all um, in Europe. And, uh, and, and all of them certainly demonstrating that henceforth, the only way actually to increase GDP is actually through carbon efficiency, because otherwise you are stuck in an economic inefficiency that does not allow you to continue um, to grow. So, um, so that was the reality that we had before coronavirus. Now we have a completely new reality, which is this very um, once in a lifetime, I would say, situation in which we're going to drop this uh, unprecedented scale of, uh, of fresh money onto the economy, which we never would have thought was necessary, in fact, even possible two months ago. So unsurprisingly, of course, again, the the group of countries that have progressed most in this um, in this analysis and understood that those uh, recovery monies need to be climate responsible is Europe. Um, And why is that? Well, because the Europeans already had the deeper experience of decoupling greenhouse gases from GDP. And so they understand that relationship, right? They totally understand that. And they see that those two things actually come hand in hand um, in the 21st century, that you do not have a rise in GDP and a rise in CO2, but rather you have a decoupling with a decrease of greenhouse gases and an increase of GDP. And because they already had that experience, then of course, it's much easier easier for them to understand that the recovery packages need to follow the same logic and that they need to um, that they need to ensure that that trajectory that had already been set is actually accelerated. Conversely, those countries that had not had that experience yet are having a much harder time, a much, much harder time. Um, And so either for the lack of experience with it or because of ideology and into ideology, I put sadly the United States and Brazil, for example, um, are countries whose leadership uh, not only doesn't understand that reverse relationship between greenhouse gases and GDP, but rather they are, you know, very much um, frozen into uh, an ideology that is not even science based. And so sadly, it is in those countries that we have actually the deepest concern because there are there are uh, decisions being made there that are going to go way beyond any electoral cycle. Right. Way, way beyond. And these are really historic decisions that are being made on uh, investments over the next 12 months. I would like to talk a bit about big countries like the US and Brazil and China and India and and the EU a bit, because one of the arguments that I have uh, with people in New Zealand on a fairly regular basis is, we're so small, why would we impose cost on our economy doing this transition when we make up 0.017% of the global total? Uh, You know, if, if, you know, the US and Brazil, you know, 
burn their forests and dig up more oil and so on and so forth. Nothing that we do uh, in New Zealand is going to make the slightest iota of difference. This this argument is put to me all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there is a counter argument that I make is like, okay, New Zealand's population is the same size as um, Los Angeles. Are you arguing that Los Angeles also shouldn't bother reducing its emissions at the same time as you're arguing that the US should? <laughs> you know, so there's that. But but what what do we, I mean, it's still clear, you know, there is still a fundamental fact there that actually this is going, the big countries have got to get with the program as well. Yes. Yes, they have to get with the program as well. But 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 let's let's go to your argument, because um, I uh, I am a Costa Rican citizen. I live in Costa Rica. I'm speaking to you from Costa Rica and uh, Costa Rica has even less of a global emission participation than New Zealand. Um, And honestly, um, you know, much as I love New Zealand, I have never heard a Costa Rican make that argument that you have just uh, that you have just made. And I would be surprised if uh, if that argument continues to be made in the post-COVID world because it's the equivalent of saying, well, I'm not going to isolate myself because um, nothing that I personally can do or that my family can do is actually going to make any difference to, um, to public health. Well, everyone who isolated themselves understands fully well that there is a huge impact that each individual person, each individual family has in the overall safety of society or the overall safety of the economy. Of course, if you are the only person that isolates, well, that doesn't make any sense. But Costa Rica, I was just telling you, right, we we are currently have the world's record of the lowest mortality rate on COVID. Why? Because the government was incredibly strict about regulations and because Costa Ricans were incredibly obedient and abiding of the scientific, um, the, the scientific advice that was being given. In fact, the ministry, the minister of health is practically running the country right now, and he continuously says this is about each person's decision if you leave your house and you go someplace you might be contaminated or you might contaminate someone so it is about individual choices it is about individual responsibility and the same argument has to be made about climate change it is also about small economies because it is only the collectivity of nations that are eventually going to make the difference, but every single bit counts. Furthermore, James, here is, I was, sadly, I did not come to New Zealand, but I was in Australia in January, and I heard exactly the same argument from the Australians with a different number. And I was very interested in that argument because I thought, Hmm. Sorry, can you refresh my memory? What 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 global participation is New Zealand? 0.07? 0.02. About 0.02. Okay. So so here's you know the consequential argument. If if we stand on the argument that New Zealand is only responsible for 0.02% of emissions and hence should do nothing about it. 
then we also would have to accept the argument that once the world addresses climate change, New Zealand only has the right to 0.02% of the benefit of having addressed climate change. That doesn't make any sense. It makes absolutely no sense. New Zealand has has the right to 100% of the benefit that is going to come from um, addressing climate change. Every country has the right to 100% benefit. Every country should have the right for a greener, um, a, a, a greener planet, greener cities, more effective agriculture, less carbon intensive, more effective, better crops, um, better transport, on and on and on. And we all should be able to benefit out of that common improvement and common good. So to argue that we deserve the common benefit, but we don't have any common responsibility. Simply doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I've never heard it articulated quite that well because where I, I, where I've gone with that in the past is to say, okay, well, let, let, let's say that under one percent is your cutoff line, right? And if you, if you, but if you add up all of the countries that each individually emit less than one percent of the global total, actually collectively we add up to about thirty percent which is more collectively than China, than the United States, than the European Union or India. Um, and so, it, it, you know, the, the 1% or less club uh, actually acting together could, could make more of a difference than, than the four biggest players individually could. Yeah, that's very true. And, and, you know, you take me back, uh, you, you take me back into the annals of history here because way, way, way back when, um, in fact, before I became the head of the Climate Change Convention, when I was a negotiator for Costa Rica, we formed a 1% club. And it was all the countries that had 1% or less of global emissions. It was a very powerful group. It was a very powerful group because, as you say, together, we um, we we really represent uh, a substantial portion of the emissions um, and um, a substantial voice uh, in in the United Nations. And none of them, interestingly enough, not even New Zealand in those days would argue that just because, you know, we we used to call ourselves with well, officially we called ourselves the one percent club, but um, unofficially we called ourselves the midgets, right? Because we were all little midget economies um, or midget little countries. Uh, and, and, you know, we always said, well, the midgets, you know, stand on each other's shoulders. And by the time we all stand on each other's shoulders, we're actually taller than any giant. Um, and that's the picture that we kept on, you know, having in our heads because it was true. It was true. And it was true then. And it is true now. It's, a, it, I mean, it's all, like you say, it's a pretty uh, significant block at the UN because I think it's something like 90 countries or so uh, fall into that category. I mean, that's a lot. Uh, it's a know, lot. Out of 200 odd countries in the world. And interestingly enough, it's some developed and, and many developing, but it's also some developed countries. So it was a very interesting, you know, political variety there. You know, when a lot of people are losing their jobs and, and those who have jobs are feeling precarious and some of them have had their income cut quite substantially, you know, it, it is an entirely understandable response to say, look, can we please just make things go back to the way they were before? I just want to get back to 
normal, whatever normal was. And I might even recognize that normal in some ways wasn't all that great, but, but please can, <laughs> can, can we just have that back? Cause it, at least I know it. And, and so to me that, that seems a risk if we are actually trying to use this moment to pivot to a, a kind of brighter future. Well, I, I don't see anywhere in anything that I read, I don't see anyone saying that there's any chance of going back to whatever the normal was two months ago. I, I don't see any argument for that. Um, quite to the contrary, what I see is people uh, really thinking about uh, more and more areas of human endeavor that are going to be substantially and forever changed. And that's why I say, I think history will be written, you know, with a new BC and AC. Um, and, and this is not Christ in that sea, it's coronavirus. Um, and, but, but let's just take, you know, one, one area that I think is forever changed is um, travel, long distance travel. Uh, you know, we, you and I struggled with this technology to finally be able to, uh, to talk to each other. But the fact is that we're all learning this technology, uh, and we're becoming with, with, with every time that we botch it up, we learn something new and we're becoming more and more fluent with it. Um, and I am, I am pretty certain that most people will, by the end of this crisis, when, you know, the lockdowns begin to lift, will have um, decided that it doesn't really make sense to fly three times around the planet to go to a one or two hour meeting that, uh, you know, that people can actually be streamlined in and or videoed into to meetings. I mean, it's not exactly the same as being there uh, and having your presence there and, and, and having a little chat over coffee. Um, but is the marginal additional value worth you're going around the world for a long, a uh, long work trip. Um, is it worth the, the stress, uh, that airports are, is it worth the stress on your health? Is it worth the cost? And is it worth the greenhouse gas emissions? And I think the answer to all of those four questions is going to be no. I mean, admittedly, it's not the same as being there in the same room, but the marginal added value is just not worth the cost. And um, so I think that there's going to be um, substantially less business travel long distance. Um, I think a lot of short, uh, short distance air travel, uh, will move to trains. I noticed that, um, Air France is, uh, cutting already their, uh, their local flights and, uh, moving people towards trains, uh, domestically in France. Um, and I, I think workplace is going to be changed. I was uh, on, uh, I'm on the board of a, of a large renewable energy company. Um, and they were saying how they are still building their new headquarters, but um, they're going to plan for 50% space for 50% of their employees because the other 50% are going to be working from home. And uh, employees will come into work for two or three days a week, but certainly not five. And so they will share desks or, you know, I mean, it is, it is just, unbelievable how many things are going to change. And so to think that we can 
wind the clock back and go to a different reality, just it just doesn't make any sense. We're, we're not going to go to that. Now, I'm hoping for both New Zealand and Costa Rica, both of which are tourism destinations, I'm hoping that we're going to cut down on business travel, but we are going to continue to be going for uh, for beautiful nature uh, and uh, and experience experience the beautiful nature that these countries have, because I think that that is not replaceable that you cannot do on a Zoom call. Um, and so I think that kind of travel and that kind of of income, let's say that Costa Rica very much depends on and New Zealand also depends on. Um, I think that will remain the same, um, but I don't think uh, work travel will. So it's interesting. We, I mean, uh, New Zealand in shutting down our borders, you know, we've basically kind of put on ice our, our tourism industry, which uh, was the single largest earner of export dollars of any sector in the country. So, you know, our national income has taken a massive hit as a result. And I imagine the same is true of Costa Rica. Um, and, and, you know, I, like you, I'm confident that there will be a tourism industry in the future, but it will be utterly different from the tourism industry that we have had uh, in the past. And and one of one of the things that the tourism industry has wanted to do and has, uh, you know, started to do, but it, you know, it's been slow, is this idea of moving from volume to value. Mm. Um, and and you know, we've tended to be a bit of a kind of a commodity provider, um, actually. Uh, that was having consequences in terms of the very destinations that people were coming to see, um, uh, and also consequences in terms of you know pollution and and so on. Um, uh, and and by definition, there will be fewer visitors uh, in in the future. And so I guess their only choice now is to actually develop, a, you know, a kind of a high value a high value proposition. And and it is it is interesting because you know people keep referencing Costa Rica and and the work that's happened there over twenty and thirty years. One of the things I'm interested in is how you expanded uh, your native forestry so much by paying farmers to plant up mm-hmm. some of the some of the land. Yeah. And we have a we have a tension here in New Zealand, so I'd be interested in exploring that with you if you don't mind, because we have a tension here in New Zealand where. Uh, under our emissions trading scheme, uh, you know, someone who owns land and plants it up in forestry, you know, gets paid under the emissions trading scheme for that. So it becomes a, you know, a source of revenue, uh, you know, which is good. Um, they're sequestering carbon in, in, in forests. But it is taking land out of productive agriculture. Uh, in some cases, it's pretty marginal land, but in some cases, it's not. And so the argument that's been made back to us, largely from the farming community, is, well, do you want to eat or not? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. because, I mean, obviously, we've got to bring down our greenhouse gases. But in the meantime, whilst we're planting trees to offset the emissions that we are putting up there, the argument has been made fairly forcefully to us that, you know, there's land is a finite resource. And if, you know, you can either grow food on it or you can grow trees on it. Mm-hmm. What's what's kind of Costa Rica's experience been? Because you've obviously been at this for a few decades now, yeah, and, and you have planted up a huge amount of your of your, your you know country and forestry. Yeah, it 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 is. Um, 
It is definitely a challenge, but um, but I think it's a solvable challenge because, um, well, let's let's just you know because you invite me, let me just put the the example of Costa Rica out there. Um, we're a very very small little country, and we also depend um, not as number one, but as number two source of uh, of income. We depend on ecotourism because all our tourism is is um, ecologically based. Um, and so that is why we have been investing into our national parks and our conservation areas for decades. Since uh, the late 1940s, we took the decision that because we are a country that doesn't have any minerals, we don't have any gold, we don't have any silver, we don't have any copper, we don't have any fossil fuels, nothing underground. You know, all our all our richness is overground. Um, and so we decided to really um, invest in in that in that richness, and we put twenty five percent of our uh, of our territory under protection because it is first of all it's good for us um, because it uh, is a source of income of tourism. It also helps us to protect our aquifers, um, and um, and 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 it is um, helping us. Interestingly enough, those the. I guess the uh, the aquifer protection and the source of income, I would say, are the hardware. But the software that we get from that, James, is that Costa Rica has been uh, at the top of the happiness index for three years more than any other country. And the reason for that is, A, because we're very, very close to our nature and B, because we don't have an army. Now, those are pretty difficult conditions to replicate in any other country. But um, but it is very much about our closeness to nature. And at some point. Point about 10 years ago, we cut down a lot of our uh, forested areas for, for wood or for cattle or for food production. And we got pretty nervous about that. And so we did um, put in uh, something that is called uh, an environmental uh, or payment for environmental services, which is that f- farm owners or landowners were paid to reforest the land. Um, now, we did have a pretty good mapping of which land was uh, good for forestry and which land was good for food production. So we do differentiate there and we are lucky enough to have enough land for for food production. Now that we're in lockdown, we've been practically food self-sufficient without having to import. Um, But we've also invested a lot into the agricultural sector such that we're actually pretty efficient per acre per, you know, however you want to measure it. Um, We have pretty high yields because we have invested in low carbon, um, high efficiency crop practices that allow us to take advantage of the of the richness of the soil um, and the natural richness and, you know, re-fertilize, not with artificial fertilization, but re-fertilize the the soil. And um, the surrounding forests actually help us with that also. So it's a pretty good um, complementary system. Um, I'm not sure how replicable it is in other countries. I've, I've had people tell me, well, whatever is true in Costa Rica is by 
definition, not possible anywhere else. Um, and I'm hoping that that's not true. <laughs> Can we talk about school kids for a moment? Because one of the most extraordinary things that I've seen uh, in my kind of time in politics has been the school strikes movement. And uh, here in New Zealand, it happened to coincide with us passing our Zero Carbon Act last year. Um, and so there was something that they were kind of galvanizing around, um, you know, which was to help us get that through through parliament in as strong form as we could. And, and what seemed, I mean, there's been a climate movement in New Zealand for decades, you know, just like everywhere else in the world. Uh, but something really did seem to shift with the school strikes movement. And I put it down to, I, you know, I, I don't have data for this, but, but, you know, my sense of it is that for the adults, having your own children walk out of the classroom and take to the streets to protest against your lack of action <laughs> sort of induces a different mindset. And I, I, it really came home to me. Uh, I, I was at, you know, obviously as part of my job, I have go to these CEO forums with, you know, the generally the guys that are running the kind of really big companies and so on. And, and the conversation is, you know, it's always open and constructive, but there's always that, you know, how much it's going to cost and what's going to impose on my company and da, 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 da. And I was in one of these uh, sort of during the height of the school strikes movement last year. And, and one of these chief execs said to me, look, my 20 year old daughter has just told me that she has no intention of having kids because she doesn't want to bring her child up in a world that is as affected by climate change as it looks like it's going to be. What do I say to her? And so that, and the whole room, like all of a sudden I had all of these other CEs kind of, you know, nodding their heads and, and so on. It's like, well, this is a different quality of conversation, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I'm, and I'm just curious what, you know, I know you had a lot to do with that around the periphery of, of the, um, you know, around the world as well. What, what's your, what's your sense of it around the world? Well, um, I'm actually quite grateful to these young people who are being so brave uh, to stand up for uh, for what they understand is a terrible injustice that we are um, bringing upon them. Uh, there is a huge, huge intergenerational injustice here, and uh, and they have very quickly understood that, and they're brave enough to go. To the streets uh, and uh, and claim their right, and uh, and that civil disobedience that is already gathering pace. Um, it, it has been shown historically that the very transformational social and political changes that have occurred in many countries have actually necessitated civil disobedience in order uh, in order to make the switch. And so I, I think because now by now we have millions of young people on the streets uh, in so many countries, 
I'm already classifying it as civil disobedience. And I think it will continue to grow as soon as we can get out of our homes. Um, I think that will continue to uh, to grow. And I'm very grateful for it because it is putting moral pressure on us. And I totally agree with you. And, you know, this the CEO, um, I hear more and more of these business leaders, financial leaders who tell me exactly the same story. My 12 year old came home last night and said, dad, what are you doing about my future? What are you doing? Don't tell me that you're educating me. Tell me what are you really doing about my future? And or mom, what is your responsibility here? Yes, thank you very much for feeding me when I was a baby, but now what? Um, And I just hear more and more and more of those stories. In fact, the very first time that I heard it, James, was in 2014, one year before Paris, and I was in Davos. And uh, the CEO of one of the major oil and gas companies um, asked to see me. And when I came over, he asked his staff and my staff to leave the room. And I thought this is very strange. Um, and we had a conversation about, you know, predictable things. He wanted to know where the Paris Agreement was more moving toward, what was my aspiration, and, you know, what were the legal implications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I thought, well, you know, all of this could have been done with the staff. What, what, what was the reason to have a private conversation? And then at the end, he said to me, he said, Christiane, I want to tell you one thing. My 13 year old daughter comes home every night and asks me if I have her interest at heart because of her, I'm going to transform this company. That's the CEO of a major oil and gas company. And that was 2014. And since then, this has gone, you know, on fire. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing because these young adults, and by the way, most of them are under 18. They're basically between 11 and 17 years old. And most of them are young women. How cool is that? right? How cool is that? Most of them are women and most of them are under 18. And I just think that that brave leadership of really speaking truth to power and standing up to, you know, those who are, who are basically making the decisions now, whether they're your parents or people in, you know, or, or in, in legislative authorities or, you know, you in, in the executive or me as a climate person, I mean, they are standing up to us and they are truly asking the very, very important questions that go straight. They go beyond our head, right? Because what we usually tend to do when we talk about climate is we stay in our head. It's this many gigatons and, you know, these uh, how many more um, employment is going to be made and da, 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 da. and we stay in our head and we have all of this data that we regurgitate. But these young people make us go beyond our head, straight to our heart. And that's a different conversation because all of a sudden they're forcing us to align our heart with our head. And I think it's the fact that we disassociate what our head thinks from what our heart feels that we make the wrong decisions. The moment that you align those two things, your head and your heart, you're bound to make better decisions. And that's what they're doing. So kudos to them. (laughs) I, um, 
I was actually going to, as my closing question, I was going to ask you about something that you say in your book, um, which is about the need for a shift in people's consciousness. And, you know, I guess there's an assumption that that shift in consciousness will take time. But you also, you know, as we, we started this whole conversation with, uh, have said, you know, that we have one shot at this, that this right now is the moment where we get to fix this or not, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile the need for a, a shift in consciousness with the kind of urgency and, and actually kaleidoscoping the next 10 years worth of climate action into the next 24 months as we dish out this, this co this COVID recovery package, how do we do that? Yeah, well, not, I mean, not easy, but, you know, again, another lesson that we've learned over the past um, two months is that we can move to being our better selves in very short term. Most people, I'm not going to say every single one, but most people who are isolating have become better human beings. We have become more aware of the suffering of others. We have become more willing to be supportive of those who are having a harder time and could use some help from us. We have become more aware of our internal machinations. And, and you know, and, and look at the people who are standing on balconies singing. They're not doing that because they have a marvelous voice. They're doing that because they know that our heart needs to sing and that it needs to sing with other human beings. We have become actually in this crisis, we have grown into better human beings. Now, I'm hoping that that's going to stay with us when we finally leave our walls, but it has proven that we don't need, you know, 10 years or 20 years to change our consciousness, to change our awareness, to change our sense of what is the purpose in life and what are the priorities here. We've done that already in just a few weeks and a few months. And, uh, and we better remember it. We better remember it because if we do not take those fantastic lessons from this crisis, it will be a crisis that we have wasted. And there's no greater sin than a wasted crisis. Christiana Figueres, thank you so much for your time and your generosity you. and spirit. Really, really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you very much. And my love to New Zealand. Thank you to Christiana Figueres for joining me today. And thanks again to you for listening. Feel free to get in touch anytime and my email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. My guest next week is the writer and activist Naomi Klein. See you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.